The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure, or this morning, let's make sure that we are ready to study His Word and ready to concentrate and focus. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin if necessary, and then uh, we'll begin. Maybe, John, you need to turn the uh, fans up just a little bit while, uh, while we're starting to pray. Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word, to have our thinking challenged by your word, your commandments, your instruction, that we might exchange the human viewpoint ideas in our soul for the divine viewpoint, absolute truth expressed in your word. Under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit will be able to understand these things and uh, assimilate them into our own thinking, relating the doctrine we learn today with doctrine we have learned in the past. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. As I have stated almost without, uh, uh, to, almost to the point of ad nauseum repetition the last few Weeks, John, turn that one over me down a little bit because, yeah, turn that one down just a little bit so that my Bible doesn't flutter too much. Blow my notes away. First John is a battleground epistle. This has not become, uh, has not been as clear to me in the past perhaps as it has been in terms of this study. It is uh, one of the most difficult epistles to Interpret, I think, because we don't read it in the original languages, and if you read it in uh, the NIV or even in the New American Standard at places, what you will do, what you would discover is that there have been not only translation errors, but the translators, because of their preconceived understanding of what First John is all about have indeed interpreted the text instead of simply translating it, and their interpretation goes beyond what the original Greek says, and it really skews the reader's view of First John in such a way that it appears to be talking about salvation when, in fact, it is talking about the spiritual life. I have stated again and again as we have gone through 1 John, that the issue in 1 John is a contrast, not between believer and unbeliever, but a contrast between the believer who is growing and advancing in his spiritual life and the believer who is not, the believer who, as John states in 1 John 2.28, will be ashamed at the coming of Christ. We must interpret the details within a context in light of the overall context of what John is saying. First John 2.28, John says, And now little children abide in him. He's addressing them as believers, 
And the term abide, as we have studied so many times, is not a phrase for salvation, but it is a phrase for fellowship, for ongoing fellowship with Jesus Christ, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. It is so important to go through and notice certain key words. One of the key words for understanding John is this word abide, which he picks up from Jesus' instruction in John chapter 15, that we are to abide in Christ. It is talking about the believer's ongoing intimate fellowship with Christ, and the fact that it is an imperative indicates that it is possible for the believer not to abide. An imperative or a command is always addressed to the volition of the individual. Any command or prohibition necessarily implies that the uh, individual can choose not to obey the command or choose to uh, ignore the prohibition. That indicates the individual's responsibility and that it is clearly possible for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has eternal life to not abide in Christ, to not maintain fellowship, to not walk in the light, as John says, but to continue a life of disobedience. Now, when we are obedient to the Lord, we are abiding in Christ, something is going to develop in our lives, and that is going to reveal our new family relationship. At the instant of salvation, we know that every believer is adopted into the royal family of God. We become a child of God positionally, even though at that instant we don't have a clue what it means to be a member of the royal family of God. We don't have a clue what the uh, commandments are, what the regulations are for a member of the royal family of God. We're just saved. But we don't know anything about what is what is expected of us as a member of God's family, And so five minutes, five days, five weeks, five months after you're saved, if there's no growth in an understanding of the Word of God, you're still going to think like you did before you were saved. You're still going to act for the most part. There might be some changes, but for the most part, you're still going to act like you did before you were saved because you don't know any different. depends on how much information you uh, receive at, at salvation and immediately after as to how much of a change there might be. But as you grow, as a believer, come to understand what the Word of God says, then your thinking will change. You will exchange the human viewpoint in your soul for divine viewpoint. You will quit thinking like the world or the culture around you and start thinking as the Bible instructs. And as a result of a change of thinking, there is a change of behavior. There's a change of lifestyle. There's a change of priorities. There's a change in the life so that... As the believer grows, he begins to manifest or demonstrate in his life his new family relationship. The demonstration or manifestation of that new family relationship, does, if it's not there, doesn't mean you're not a member of that family. Some of you may have children or know of children or have siblings or might have applied to you at one point who did not act at all like your parents wanted you to act. Some of you who have children who your children don't behave anything like the way you want them to to act, and they don't act like members of your family should act. But that doesn't mean they're not members of your family any more than if you were rebellious and disobedient, that that meant that you weren't a member of your family. This is what John is getting at here. So the key word when we come to 1 John 3.10, the key word that we see in verse 10, in this, the children of God... And the children of the devil are manifest. 
Now that word there is the key, key word, the second key word in this section other than abide. Abide tells us that the subject matter here is related to the believer's ongoing fellowship so that he is not going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ so that he can manifest or demonstrate or reveal in his own life the reality of his new family relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that manifestation, there will be rewards and the lack of uh, failure at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we see the word abide in several passages, several verses. We saw that it was used in 1 John 2.28. It's used again in 1 John 2.6. It's used again in 1 John 2.9, again in 2.14 and 2.15, and then down in 2.17, and then in 2.24 twice in 2.24. So this entire section uh, has the use of this word abide tying all of these verses together. So that shows us this is an integrated whole. We, we haven't changed the subject. So if we're talking about fellowship, then we, we get to those difficult verses that sound as if they're talking about salvation. Uh, we know because of this word abide that is at the beginning, that, it, that that's at the end, that frames the entire passage, that's woven through the entire passage, that John can't be talking about salvation. He must be talking about characteristics of of a growing spiritual life. The second word that is used here in the Greek is that we have the verb uh, phanerao. P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O, and it means to reveal, to uh, demonstrate, to manifest. And then we also have the use of the noun form, which is phaneros, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-S. And that's the word that we have here in John, 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. And it's the same word that you find back in verse 8 where it says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. Verse 5, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. And then back in verse 2 of, the, of chapter 3, uh, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed. What we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, manifest, that's that same word, uh, the, the verb phanerao and the noun phaneros. And then, of course, in this key verse that, that is really the overriding controlling theme for this section, 1 John 2.28, we know that when he appears. Now, John, now everybody here ought to be, ought to know this. In the last four years, as we've studied first the Gospel of John and now First John, that John ha- has these word games, these word plays, these paranomasias where John is using certain words in key ways to arrest our attention. It's no chance thing that John is using this word three or four times in this passage along with abide because he wants to talk about the fact that Jesus is going to be uh, revealed at the, uh, at the rapture. And at the judgment seat of Christ, our works are going to be revealed or manifest. And it's going to 
be on the basis of the manifestation of our relationship with him in time that our rewards are made. So through this whole thing, he's talking about uh, manifestation of who we are as members of God's family. The flip side isn't true, and that is that if these works aren't there, then you're not a member of God's family. That's an illegitimate deduction. The problem is that if you look at this from the wrong framework, it looks as if John is contrasting uh, believer versus unbeliever. For example, in verse 9, we read last time and studied last time, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, that is the word, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. At first glance, and if you're using a some of the English translations, it will translate that, whoever has been born of God does not continue to sin. For his seed abides in him, and he cannot continue to sin. And what happens is they make a judgment decision, interpretive decision there, that the true, genuine believer is not going to continue to commit certain sins. And the underlying assumption that we find is a dangerous one, and that is the idea that a true believer is somehow going to have less and less of a struggle with sin and less and less of a manifestation or problem with the sin nature in his life. And that is a that is a non-biblical assumption, but many people make that, and then they bring that to the Scriptures in uh, order to justify their own their own way of their own self-righteousness usually. So I stated the key word here is the verb phanerao, and in the New American Standard Version, it translates this as obvious. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. But see, the, using the word obvious, see, when I read it that way, well, the first thing that comes into your mind is the idea that this is going to help us distinguish the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Obvious changes the impact of the word. Manifest, as the New King James translates it, is much closer to the original idea. We also have studied this phrase, children of God and children of the devil, that this is not talking about uh, a positional term, but the term children of God is those who are manifesting their childhood and versus children of the devil. It's not talking about unbelievers, but that is talking about believers who are still acting as they did uh, before they were saved. So what John is talking about here is not knowledge of salvation, but he is talking about the manifestation or revelation of one's family relationship to Christ and not whether or not you are a member of that family. He's not talking about how to become a member of the family, and he's not talking about how can you know if you are a member of the family. What he's talking about is whether or not you're manifesting or demonstrating in your life your family membership in the royal family of God. The problem is that we live in a time of increasing self-righteousness, both in the church and in the culture at large. And remember, we have a the biblical term for culture at large is the Greek word cosmos, the as Louis Berry Chafer called it, the cosmos diabolicus, that is the devil's world system, and it is the devil's world system that has it has a value system, it has a certain 
uh, level of ethics and morality. The unbeliever can produce a certain standard of, uh, of virtue and integrity. But this is far, far, far short of the virtue and integrity demanded by God, which is absolute or perfect righteousness. The virtue and integrity that is produced by the world is a manifestation of whatever ethical system or moral system they're, they're espousing. So it is always a relative righteousness, which we symbolize with a minus. It is a relative righteousness. So when you read through here and you think in terms of cosmos, we need to think in terms of human culture. And I'm not using the term culture here in terms of, of um, more higher expressions of culture, such as art or ballet or dance or, or um, theater, music, something like that. But the everyday value system, the everyday lifestyle, the everyday views and opinions of a culture at large. We have to remember that self-righteousness is a major function of our modern culture and that self-righteousness functions through the four arrogant skills. For example, the first arrogant skill is self-absorption. first arrogant skill is self-absorption. We begin to focus on ourselves, our own feelings, our own emotions. That's evident in our culture. How do you feel about things? That's the number one issue is how do you feel about this issue or that issue and the focus becomes personal emotions and personal problems. In self-absorption, man focuses on his own problems, his own situation. The second arrogant skill is self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Now that you are focusing on yourself, you are going to indulge those emotions. You are going to indulge that attention to your own problems, your own situation, your, the, your own opinions and thinking about that situation. And in self-indulgent, man indulges in the fantasy that he can solve his problems apart from God. So he starts with self-absorption, that is, that he has problems, and he moves to self-indulgence that man can solve his own problems apart from God. This then develops into the third arrogant skill, which is self-justification. In self-justification, we are going to justify our own uh, views, our own opinions, our own attempts to solve our problems on our own. And so man justifies this by saying God really doesn't exist. God's not involved in our problems. God's not involved in human history. So we must do it on our own. If we don't do it, nobody else will. See, God helps those who help themselves. Many people think that's in the Scripture, but it's not. It just lends itself to legalism. So we move from self-absorption to self-indulgence to self-justification, and that then produces self-deception. In self-deception, man constructs his own view of reality because God is the one who defines reality, defines what the absolutes are. When man tries to reconstruct reality according to his own self-deception, it is a false view of reality. If you're not operating on a true view of reality, then when you solve problems, they won't, you won't solve problems. You may move things around. You may find a level, a, a, a level of comfort, a level of satisfaction with life the way it is, but there's no real solution to the issues of life. 
You're just going to exchange one one set of problems for another set of problems. So in self-deception, man constructs uh, examples of successful solutions that are usually fallacious. When you look at them with any degree of intensity, you discover that they don't work in the long run. Many of the campaigns that we can look at in our own history to improve life and to change various social features are motivated by self-righteous arrogance to create a perfect environment. This has been a major feature of the American landscape for the last 150 years, almost 200 years, and has done little, has produced little in the way of success because at the root of our modern cultural attempt to solve social problems is the assumption that man is perfectible and that society is perfectible. And so our culture, our history, American culture, has attempted to solve the social problems of the day through various human viewpoint techniques. And they've always ended up producing more problems than they solved. For example, there was the attempt to solve the problem of slavery. The way the United States attacked the slavery problem was vastly different from the way the Brits attacked the slavery problem because they came from two different viewpoints. In the, and I've gone through this many times. In the U.S., they were operating on a self-righteous arrogance and a theological framework from both the legalism of Finney and the uh, perfectionism and utopianism of the transcendentalists that move human arrogance into the forefront of motivation. Whenever arrogance is involved, the consequence is always going to be polarization and fragmentation. And in Britain, the prime movers and shakers of the abolitionist movement were committed evangelicals who understood total depravity and understood grace, and the result was not polarization. They did not have a civil war, and they do not have the race problems 150 years later that we do in the U.S. It just shows that theology matters and arrogance is destructive and that human viewpoint solutions based on the assumption that man is perfectible are always going to fail. Now, I'm not saying that the problem shouldn't be addressed. It's not a matter of saying, well, these things are, some things are right and some things are wrong or that these are or are not social problems. It is a matter of the framework within which the culture operates to solve the problems. And if your framework is built on a, a, a fragmented or divorced view of reality or false view of reality, then your solution will, will never work. Another problem that came up was the problem of the, addressing the problem of alcoholism. The solution was prohibition, and that did not work. It failed to solve the problem of temperance. In fact, it created a host of other problems. In our own day, we have examples of a social problem that we're facing in the realm of health care and who's paying for health care and who's going to take care of the enormous health care costs of an aging population. And so we have... Uh, uh, Hillary Care proposed that just would increase the socialism and the level of federal involvement because you see in a perfectionistic framework, uh, the human government can solve man's problems. And so you look to federalism. Now, the, the founding fathers of our nation were against that sort of federal uh, federal control. You ought to go back and read the Federalist Papers. Give yourself a little education if you've never if you've never read them. 
You also see what's happening in the realm of smoking. Now, nobody's going to argue that smoking is healthy or smoking is good for you, but that doesn't mean that the federal government and state government should get involved like they have in uh, the People's Republic of California, People's Republic of Massachusetts. For those of you who don't know, the term People's Republic is a reflection of communist Marxist mentality that somehow the government can solve problems. So you have areas that are making it illegal even for a private individual to smoke in their own apartment, to smoke outside. And uh, that's just a, another manifestation of this self-righteous arrogance. It's a, it's a false solution to a problem because the uh, people who are wanting to solve the problem are operating on a false view of reality. And somehow they think that we can get rid of all these problems and that the federal government and law is, is a good way to do that. In other ways, the environmentalists, now nobody would, in their right mind would argue that the corporations ought to be allowed to just freely dump whatever chemical waste they have into what the ground or rivers or anything like that. We all recognize that that creates long-term problems and, and uh, toxic waste and everything else that can get into the food chain and be dis- dis- disruptive and destructive. But the problem is when you think you can create a perfect environment, then that's going to cause you to come up with solutions that are false. Now, biblically, we're to, we understand that the environment is important because it was created by God for the use of the human race to develop technologically, and the way you approach environmental problems is different from the way you would if you're operating on a pantheistic environment where man is a part of nature just like every other aspect of nature operating on really a Darwinistic evolutionary framework, and therefore you become anti-technology, anti-advance, and so what happens is in that framework you try to solve the problem by passing laws that are inherently uh, going to be inherently destructive because at the root is the idea that all technology is ultimately evil because it's going to conflict with, with nature as a whole. So these are just some examples of how the world at large operating on the self-righteous assumption that man is perfect or perfectible and society is perfectible, uh, that you come up with all these different approaches to social problems that end up creating uh, more problems than they solve. Well, if we live in a um, if we live in a fallen world, as believers, we have to take into account three important doctrines, three important doctrines that are foundational that really show the difference between the way the world looks at reality, the culture at large looks at reality, and the way the Bible looks at reality. The first is to take seriously the doctrine of the fall of man. The doctrine of the fall of man teaches that man is inherently evil, not inherently good, and that he is prone to evil. So that that doesn't mean that everybody is as evil as they could be. And remember, you have you, maybe you have to rethink your own definition of evil. See, the culture at large defines evil as someone like Charles Manson, someone who is a uh, a serial killer or a serial rapist or someone who gets involved in certain kinds of terrorist activities. But when we look at the scripture, a person can be evil because they are promoting good in the wrong context. So you can have somebody who is teaching that you can be saved by your own works 
And because that's going to change your eternal destiny to the lake of fire instead of heaven, that is more wicked and evil than somebody who commits mass murder. Somebody who commits mass murder who has put their faith alone in Christ alone is going to end up in heaven. But somebody like a religious leader who teaches that you can achieve success and happiness in this life apart by following some 10-step program or that you can have uh, you can end up in heaven by living a good moral life when that's not true is more evil and destructive than the person who commits mass murder. So we have to think of evil not in the way the world defines evil, but in the way the Bible defines evil. So man is inherently evil. That mean, that doesn't mean that he is as bad as he can be, but that every aspect of his thinking is Divorced from reality from birth because of sin. And so when man operates independent of God, that is the essence of evil. Second, because of the failure to take into account total depravity, it affects the way our human institutions operate. The founding fathers understood that men were prone to evil and prone to tyranny, and therefore they established a system of government where there were checks and balances between the different branches of government in order to restrict this uh, evil tendency on man's part. When we think man is perfect and basically good, then what happens is we the, the move is to remove those those uh, uh, checks and balances in government in, in order to, and in, in fact to increase the power. Of government, and third, when we realize the doctrine of the fall, we realize we live in a fallen world that cannot be perfected, that society cannot cannot be perfected, and that the environment cannot be perfected. And so, instead of trying to perfect everything, you try to you you, you change your direction. Doesn't mean you don't try to handle problems or have some level of social righteousness or justice but it's different trying to it's a different move to establish justice or righteousness than it is to have perfection so if you're not operating on a concept of fallen and understanding of total depravity then you have a completely skewed view of reality so in contrast the bible offers a responsible view of government responsible view of handling problems of the environment problems of society but addresses them within the framework of the doctrine of total depravity. Failure to do so means that we're going to be divorced from reality, and solutions based on a pseudo-reality are always doomed to failure. Now, I've spent a long time on that because I wanted to set a context, and the context is we're operating in a culture that has problems with understanding the sinfulness of sin and the extent of depravity. So if you're raised in a culture like that and you are then saved, you're bringing that baggage with you, that mental baggage with you into Christianity. And we see evidence of that in modern trends. And modern trends are that if, to think that if you're saved, now you're not going to have problems with sin. Sin is no longer quite as depraved. Your sin nature is no longer as depraved after you were saved as it was before you were saved. If you take, in fact, in light of what we've learned in First John, if you take that perfectionistic trend 
that perfectionistic view of the cosmic system with you as baggage into your Christian life, then what you're doing is you're bringing the world's thinking with you into your post-salvation life. The Bible calls that being a friend of the world in James 4, where we read the friend of the world is the enemy of God. First John states it this way, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Then we have that same kind of thing, that if you're operating in the world system, you are of the devil. You are acting like a child of the devil and not like you're in the new royal family of God. When you take that perfectionistic, worldly attitude into the church, then you're going to become appalled and shocked when some Christians commit certain overt sins, when they wake up one morning and decide that they uh, really should have been born a male instead of a female, or a female instead of a male, or if they engage in certain, especially the more extreme overt sins, some sort of homosexuality, lesbianism, sodomy, whatever it might, whatever shocks you the most. When you run into people who once were positive Christians and now they're complacent, if not negative, about the gospel, and maybe they've just given up Christianity altogether, uh, when alleged Christians have become enamored with false doctrines, then you get shocked. You say, well, they weren't really saved. Maybe they, they didn't have genuine faith. They're, they're not really believers. And so in this human viewpoint thinking that has been imported into the church, Christians construct a rationalistic ex- explanation. They're, they're not saved. They didn't really understand the gospel. Because if they did, then their sin nature wouldn't be so extreme. That, that somehow they wouldn't be be uh, so perverse. They wouldn't be committing those sins. They wouldn't continue to commit those sins. And the view is that at, sin na- at salvation, they think, the sin nature is somehow handicapped, so it's no longer as capable as it once was. They think that somehow sin will automatically diminish if you're truly saved, and sin will become increasingly sporadic in the life of the true believer. The problem is, just like the pagan outside the church who rejects biblical truth altogether, there are too many theologians and Christians and pastors in the church who have forgotten what total depravity is all about. They have established a false criteria for the spiritual life, a false criteria for salvation, and they fail to focus on the necessity of forward advance to spiritual maturity. That's what creates the problems with understanding 1 John 3. The issue here is not, are they saved? Are they a member of the royal family of God? The issue here is, are they manifesting their relationship with God so that they can be without shame when he is manifested at the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ? That's the whole point. Are we, as believers, manifesting our relationship with God so that we can be without shame when he, when he is manifested at the rapture? If you take this discussion to be about being a believer, then you have real problems when you come to passages like 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, and you do, uh, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And that could be taken to say that everyone who is truly regenerated practices righteousness. 
And that's exactly what they do. They think that the opposite is also a true statement. That is, if you don't practice righteousness, then you're not really saved. But as I've stated many times, that does not say that in the, in the Greek. It says everyone who does righteousness. That's an indication that the doing of righteousness is a manifestation of the fact that you are a member of the royal family of God. If you don't do righteousness, it just means you're not living like a member of the family. It doesn't mean you're not a member of the family. Now, when we come to verse 10, John says, In this the children of the God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, we have to go back and connect that to what we read earlier. He's not talking about the fact that if you don't do righteousness, and let me correct that translation in First uh, John 2.10. In the New American Standard, it says, anyone who does not practice righteousness, it's the same phrase as they have in the, in the, in the New King James. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it means the person who does not do righteousness. So the emphasis here is on Doing plus R. Only a person who is regenerate can produce, through the Holy Spirit, perfect righteousness. If he is not in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, he cannot produce perfect righteousness. And remember, perfect righteousness here is not morality. Any unbeliever can be moral. Perfect righteousness here is talking about the production of Christian Virtue, the production that comes from a soul that has Christian integrity produced by God the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God. So John is saying the way you can tell whether or not a person is manifesting their family relationship is whether or not there is a production of integrity. And he's going to use one example that is the highest and greatest example of what real uh, of Christian integrity, and that is impersonal love and personal love for all mankind. It is this the unique concept of Christian love. Jesus made the, stated the commandment in John thirteen thirty four and thirty five, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, that is by the expression of love for one another, believer to believer here. This is not talking about believer to unbeliever. It's not talking about unbeliever to unbeliever. It's talking about specifically the believer's love for another believer. Now, I'm stressing that because, because what we're going to see in this, in this section is people will come back and say, see, if that person didn't express love for another believer, they weren't really saved. Now, you know, there's, there, there's a logical fallacy hiding in that verse. I want you to pay attention to this. You see, if person A is not really saved, then person B isn't their brother, and they can't love their brother. You can't hold them accountable to love that because he's not their brother. So the very assumption here in John, if he's talking about the fact that A is not loving B, and A should be loving B because they have a family relationship, they're another member of the royal family of God, then that assumes that the person A who is not doing it has to be a believer because you can't hold person A accountable for loving his brother if he's not saved because then he's not his brother. 
Do you understand that? That's a clear inference here, and yet it just goes past so many people. So John says the highest illustration of this, of, of doing righteousness in a person's life, is loving, a, showing love to another believer. Whoever does not do righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So he's going to use this as the framework for talking about uh, righteousness and the manifestation of the believer of the uh, genuineness of the believer's life. Jesus repeated this several times in John 15:12. He said, "This is my commandment that you love." one another just as I have loved you. Notice what the point of comparison. It is to love one another as Christ loved us. In the Old Testament, we have the command in various places. Uh, for example, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the, the neighbor could be a believer, could be an unbeliever, and the model was to love them as you love yourself. But Jesus came along and upped the ante. He raised the stakes. He, he raised the, the criteria higher. He said, you're to love other believers, so the object is different now, as I have loved you. So it's no longer the point of comparison. The standard is no longer as you love yourself. The point of comparison now is as Christ loved us. So in order to understand what this means, we have to understand some things about Christ, the demonstration of Christ's love for us at the cross. So in verse 10, John says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice or whoever does not do righteousness is not of God. That is, he's not walking with God. He's not demonstrating his family relationship. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. That is, from the beginning of the church age, that we should love one another. This is the commandment that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35. It's reiterated again. You might want to draw a line across the page of your Bible in verse 23 of this chapter. Once again, this, this reminder of this, this, this command frames this discussion. And that means that everything between verse 11 down to verse 24 is, is going to be related. Verse, uh, excuse me, verse 23. Verse 23 states, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, these are two separate issues. Believing on the name of, this, of Jesus Christ is salvation. Loving one another is a responsibility that every believer has once he is in the family. It is not that you, to be saved you have to do two things, that is believe and Second, to love one another. These are related to two distinct aspects of the Christian life, of of the life. First, the birth, believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the standard for the life after the birth, and that is loving one another. Now in verse 12, John begins to give us an illustration to understand the significance of the commandment. He said, not as Cain. So he's going to go back to the Old Testament. He's going to pull up an illustration from from the Old Testament. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Now, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody, so nobody raise your hands. But I would guess that if I ask the question, is Cain going to be in heaven, that um, 
there would be very few people who would say yes. But I want you to know that there's nowhere in the Scriptures that indicates one way or the other about Cain's regenerated status. It doesn't say anywhere. The issue in Genesis chapter 4 did not have anything to do with salvation. They were not bring, they were just bringing an offering. At best, we can say it had to do with their understanding of the ceremonial observance that God laid down in order to come into His presence, which would indicate more of a sanctification issue than a salvation issue. But we can't press that. The scriptures are completely silent as to whether or not Cain was saved or not. But see, most people assume, for whatever reason, that Cain was not saved. And then if you make that assumption and bring that with you into reading this verse, then you're going to end up with the wrong conclusion. John is not using this as an illustration of salvation versus uh, non-salvation. He's using this as an illustration of how one brother uh, uh, deals with a, someone else in the same family. Emphasis, again, is on the fact that in as far as John is concerned, the person who loves and the person who doesn't love are true, genuine members of the family of God. So this is, he's not talking about evidence uh, that uh, of not being saved. This is what the lordship crowd continuously does, is they import these kinds of assumptions into their understanding of the text. John says it's not like Cain who was of the wicked one. That is, he was operating on his sin nature. When you operate on your sin nature, you're operating on Satan's plan and Satan's agenda. That doesn't mean that you are demon-possessed. It doesn't mean the devil makes you do it. But you are operating in the same framework, the same frame of reference, the same arrogance that characterized Satan in his sin. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. In other words, the reason that Cain murders Abel is because Abel's obedience has brought to life the disobedience, the arrogance, the self-absorption of Cain. That doesn't mean that Cain was not necessarily saved. For example, Paul recognizes the same principle in 1 Corinthians 11:19, where he writes, there must also be factions among you. Now, we studying 1 Corinthians in first hour, we know there are many divisions, many antagonisms going on in the congregation in Corinth. But nowhere does Paul question their salvation. He questions their application of doctrine. What Paul recognizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that there will be divisions. There will be believers who are operating on arrogance, who get crossways with other believers. And the history of Christianity is the history of schisms and heresies and uh, infighting in churches and church splits. And that's the reason we have so many different denominations. It always amazes me people think of the fact that there's a lot of Baptist denominations. There's almost as many Presbyterian denominations. Most people, they don't get the press the Baptists do, though. But uh, and there's probably just almost just as many Lutheran denominations. So there are there's all kinds of infighting in the church where people get angry with one another, and some person looks crosswise at somebody else, or somebody gets involved in some situation, somebody else 
thinks is wrong or immoral and they ought to be kicked out of the church. So they get mad and they leave and they go start another church. And so as a result of all these various mental attitude sins, there's all kinds of divisions that take place in the church. But you don't find people running around saying, well, you, you split from the church, so therefore you're not really saved. And that's the point that Paul is making is that these divisions take place because they demonstrate in many cases the believers that are manifesting their positive volition to the word and their application of doctrine versus those that don't understand the word and are operating on arrogance and are causing the division. This is the same thing that happened with Cain. Why did he murder Abel? Because his works were evil. evil. Because Cain, I mean, Abel's obedience demonstrated the disobedience and the evil arrogance of Cain's works. Now, Cain did not do anything so horrible as to introduce socialism into the uh, uh, early church. He did not, or, or the early. Uh, early history of mankind, Cain did not do anything as horrible at this at that point as to commit murder. He had not done anything such as a sexual perversion. What Cain was guilty of was bringing an unauthorized offering to God of his own works, his the fruit of the field, what he had produced on his own, and in disobedience to God who had given them instruction to bring a lamb without spot or blemish. Abel brought the lamb, Cain brought the production of his own works, and that's what was evil. Cain, when John says here, because his works were evil, he's not talking about the murder. The murder is what came after that. It is the demonstration of his evil works, which is just bringing the wrong kind of sacrifice and disobedience to God. That's what is called evil, and that's what was made manifest because by Abel's own obedience in God's approval of Abel. So John illustrates here that it is possible for members of the same family to be in a hostile relationship, but he is saying that this is not the way it should be for members of the royal family of God. So he says, Do not marvel, verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. See, he just says other believers ought to love you. Don't be amazed that the, the world hates you. The world ought to hate you. Jesus said the world hates me. If the world hates me, you can expect the world to hate you. If you're a believer operating on divine viewpoint, walking in relationship to God, unbelievers and believers who are not operating on the standards of God's Word, are always going to look at you as if you're weird, if you're bizarre, if you're some kind of fanatic, and they're going to come up with all kinds of adjectives and ideas about believers who are trying to apply the Word, and they did the same thing with the Lord. We shouldn't be surprised at that. But we should know, verse 14, we should know or have cognizance of the fact that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Now, as soon as you see phrases like death to life, people often jump to uh, everlasting life in terms of being saved. But John uses the term life and everlasting life in both a qualitative sense and a quantitative sense. For example, in John 10.10, Jesus used it the same way. He said, I came not to give life, but to give it abundantly. In other words, there is the giving of initial giving of life at salvation, which is everlasting, unending life in eternity. And then as the believer advances in spiritual growth and capacity for happiness, he is going to develop the abundant life, a quality of life. 
if you are disobedient and you're out of fellowship, you're in carnal death. That's what Paul talks about both in Romans 6 and Romans 7. In fact, the last verse in Romans 6.23, which is often quoted for salvation, is not a salvation verse at all in the context. Hold your place here and let's turn to Romans chapter 6, and we will wrap up with a look at that. Romans chapter 6. In fact, I got a call from somebody this last week asking me uh, to clarify this. The verse is, often you've heard it quoted for salvation, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that sounds as if that's talking about salvation. But let's look at the context. Go back to verse 22. Paul says, but now having been set free from sin, that's talking about what happens at salvation. We are set free from the tyranny of the sin nature. doesn't mean we don't still have a sin nature, but up to salvation you only had one option, and that is to follow the sin nature. Maybe you're following the area of weakness and you're producing overt sins or sins of the tongue or mental attitude sins, or maybe you're following the area of strength and you're producing human good. Nevertheless, you're, the only option you have before you're saved is production from the sin nature. Everything you did from the moment you were born till the moment you were saved came from the sin nature. No other option. You were a slave to the sin nature according to uh, Romans chapter 6. But in verse 22, Paul says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, that's positional, you have your fruit to holiness, that is sanctification, and the end, everlasting life. So the end result of sanctification is everlasting life. He's not talking about entering heaven. He's not talking about acquiring uh, everlasting life at salvation. He is talking about that quality of life that comes as a result of sanctification. For the wages of sin, his death, he says, he's talking about the result of sin after you're saved. The result of sin after you're saved is death, not eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, but carnal death, the loss of capacity for life, making yourself miserable, and losing rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. The wages of sin is death, temporal death, carnal death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying the same thing there that John is talking about in 1 John chapter 3. And that is that as believers, we need to manifest who we are as children of God, operate on the basis of God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, and as we grow and advance, one manifestation of that is that righteousness is produced, and the highest form of righteousness, the highest form of integrity, is expressed through Christian love, either through personal or impersonal love. In contrast to that, John says in 1 John 3.15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life, what? Abiding in him. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the same kind of eternal life that Paul's talking about at the end of Romans chapter 6, and that is there's no spiritual life, there's no capacity for life and blessing there. There is the consequence of self-induced misery, divine discipline, and the loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So the point of verses 10 through 15 is that the believer who is abiding in Christ is going to manifest his 
relationship to Jesus Christ, his membership in the royal family of God. If he is not abiding, he will manifest his life as a child of the devil, and the result will be that instead of experiencing that abundant life that Jesus promised, he will experience carnal and temporal death. John will continue that, and we'll continue that study in next week, beginning in verse 16, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the fact that as believers we have been adopted into your family, but it doesn't stop there. We are to continue to press on to spiritual maturity. As we grow and mature, then we will uh, begin to experience that full life, the abundant life that you that you promised us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is based not on who we are, what we have done, or what we haven't done. It's based on the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin in human history, past, present, and future. And all we have to do is accept that as a free gift. Scripture makes it clear it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But it doesn't stop with salvation. It goes on to the growth, the maturity, the advance to the, uh, to spiritual maturity where we manifest our true identity as children of God. We pray that those here who are believers would be willing to accept that challenge to advance to spiritual maturity through the learning of Bible doctrine, through the teaching ministry and filling of God the Holy Spirit, that we may continue to abide in Christ, that the fruit of the Spirit would be produced and manifest in our lives, that we would demonstrate our true family identity as children of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.